This is Michael Easley in Context. Here's a peek at what Michael will be talking about today. I also feel like I got a little glimpse, uh, just a little glimpse, of what unconditional love might be, what it might look like. With Hope, you know, it was evident to us early on that she would not grow up. You know, so much of our care for our young children, if we really examine it, we, we are thinking about the future. With Hope, we knew that there wasn't going to be that long-term future for her. So did that cause us to cut corners on our care for her or our love for her? No, it didn't. And now your host, Dr. Michael Easley. Serving as a pastor, I've presided over a lot of funerals. You expect to bury grandparents. You expect to bury a parent. Unfortunately, you expect to bury your spouse at some point, but it's not right. It doesn't seem fitting to bury a child. Probably the hardest tragedy for any human being to go through is the loss of a child. We continue our interview with David and Nancy Guthrie, uh, hearing their incredible story of losing not one, but two children and the journey that this has taken them on with their walk with Christ and what it means to live in a fallen world and to understand God's blessings in the context of a fallen world. Tell us about her funeral. Well, we had, um, we had a graveside service first, a burial, and um, had dear friends gathered around and, and our pastor uh, there. There's and, nothing uh, that feels right about putting your child's body in the ground. That was yeah. probably my lowest experience to put her body in the ground yeah. and walk away. Yeah, you're, yeah. You're, you're bearing potential. You're bearing all the things, mm-hmm. David, you're, you mentioned to we're going to help them grow yes. up, go to college, find a mate, yeah. and all that stopped. Yeah. Plus, we'd spent six months caring for her body, yeah. and now we're putting the body in the ground. Yeah. I mean, we had a sense that there was, uh, because of the difficult week, few weeks leading up to her death, uh, you know, you, you get a sense it is time, and there is a mercy uh, that, that, mm. that that is over. Um, but then, you know, as we uh, had the burial service and we walked away from the grave, um, I remember this having this strong sense and then saying to Nancy, I, I really thought that our faith and the way we've been walking through this up until now would make this hurt less, mm. um, wow. that it would uh, mitigate the pain of this moment of walking away from, from the grave. And... Um, Maybe it did, but I, you couldn't tell by me. You know, it didn't feel that way. It felt like the full weight, the full brunt of, of sorrow at that time. And so that, that threw me a little bit because I thought, okay, we're, we've been working on this for the six months of her life. So certainly this will be a hard day or two, but, um, you know, it'll be okay. But, uh, yeah, and, until you experience that. And uh, people who are hearing us know this to be true. You know, until you experience that, you don't really you, know you to anticipate. Any idea how you're going to respond? It was the day after the funeral that really came home to me. Uh, we went to church that morning. It was a Sunday morning. We came home, and then, you know, all the family begins to leave, and the funeral's over. And I remember saying to David at that point, I think I understand for the first time in my life why people take drugs. Hmm. I've never felt a pain that I felt willing to do whatever it takes not to feel it before. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that day, my way of dealing was going to bed. I just wanted to try to sleep it away, you know. And I figured out I couldn't do that. And I couldn't eat it away or drink it away or shop it away. We couldn't travel it away or busy it away or anything. Just 
have to feel this load of of sorrow, you know, that for me mostly came out in tears. I mean, I just felt like I had this huge reservoir of tears inside that had to come out. And, you know, they're still coming out in some sense. It's not like they did then, of course. But faith doesn't eliminate sorrow. I, I think a lot of times we have the sense that that tears somehow reflect a lack of faith, and it simply isn't so. We're human, and when you lose something or someone you love, it hurts. And, and we grieve differently. There's just, there's some well inside us that we have to spend out. David, how did you grieve the same way? Did you was uh, no, <laughs> uh, right? No, I yeah, it, it's so true. We everybody going through grief. We're individuals. We ha- bring our personality, our temperament to it. Uh, there are some real commonalities, but. Uh, yeah, for Nancy and I, uh, we had to learn a little bit how to do this together and and individually. Um, Nancy, as she said, uh, you know, a lot of her grief came out in tears. And uh, while I would have said at the time, oh, I understand that, that's not surprising, um, kind of the, wh- the when and where part was uh, surprising to me. It was often unexpected. It was mm-hmm. as the weeks and months went on, um, you know, I... Where in the past it would have taken a pretty identifiable event to cause tears to flow, they could come at any time, and um, and that was hard. You know, there were a lot of adjustments for me as a guy. You know, uh, we we want to we, we want to make it right. We want to fix things. We want to uh, when when uh, Nancy said, "I want to make her happy," mm-hmm. and um, I had to realize that that wasn't really what was needed here, and. I, even if it were, I, I wasn't capable of changing that. And, and what she explained to me is, I those tears need to come out. Don't and cu- and stop couples, them. couples have got to hear this in, in every day of life, not just losing a child. That you can't, you know, you can't fact away a feeling is the way I often tell people. Mm. Is just because, okay, honey, okay, Cindy, because you feel this way. Let me tell you the facts behind right. this. Let you me can't explain. Fact, this you can't fact away you. a feeling, <laughs> and we process differently. Now, now many couples divorce. High percentage mm. couples who, who lose one child uh, will separate. You guys, mm. conflict rise during this time? Well, there's no doubt that this kind of so- sorrow, this kind of loss, and, and for many people there's added uh, trauma that may have caused the death. And, Blaming. Oh, yeah, so many factors. And um, no doubt it puts a new stress and strain on a marriage. No marriage is perfect anyway. And uh, when this tidal wave hits you, it exposes um, those where, where, where the, yeah. the foundation may have been uh, shaky before. And so uh, definitely it throws off your equilibrium. Uh, one way I, w- I like to say it is that when you've been married for what, any amount of time, you've, as a couple, kind of worked out some uh, communication methods and some shortcuts and uh, you kind of fill in the gaps for each other, and it kind of all works. And you think, oh, yeah, we, we've got a great marriage. We communicate really well. Mm-hmm. And what I found happens is this kind of throws off the whole axis of your uh, communication. And and so it takes a new kind of commitment. And the difficult thing is you're doing it when you're the weakest individually. you know. And wow. so uh, – it may sound, as you hear those kinds of descriptions, wow, how does anybody make it through yeah. grief? However, what we have found is that it, this kind of experience as a couple 
really gives you an opportunity to grow closer, believe it or not. Um, I think of it a little bit like, um, you know, stories you hear of soldiers who have gone through a war together. You know, they may have not known each other beforehand and they spent a short amount of time, but it's so intense and it's a shared intensity and they're lifetime friends. They grow close or, uh, you know, a sports team or that kind of thing. And um, Nancy and I realized we needed to lean on each other through this. And um, so it was a blessing that days when I felt tapped out, she was, um, you know, a little stronger and Mm -hmm. vice versa. Tag team. I think one of the reasons couples struggle under a load of grief is that we don't understand that the essence of grief is a deep loneliness. Mm-hmm. You know, and the whole reason we got married was so we would would be lonely, right? <laughs> so we can tend to think if I'm this lonely, then he or she must not be being there for me in the way I need most. And so, you know, we can start in the midst of grief thinking, you know, he 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 won't cry with me, or he won't talk to me about it, and that's what I need. Or she's crying all the time, and that's you know, doesn't she know I want to have some fun and. But mostly um, heightening the expectations of each other and what I would say is an inappropriate expectation that our spouse, by their very presence and response to our grief, should eliminate the deep loneliness of grief. And I think once we recognize, you know what, even if my spouse is perfectly responding Mm -hmm. to me, whatever that is, but, you know, responding to me in the way that's perfect for me, I'm still going to feel desperately lonely in the midst of grief. That helps to lessen or make more appropriate our expectations. When did you have, there are times, Nancy, when you needed David to just be there or whatever, and there's times when, David, you needed Nancy to be there or whatever, and obviously, as we do in any situation in life, we meet each other's needs the wrong way. So if, if I'm feeling really hurt and lonely and whatever and he's not available she's not available how's that work <laughs> well we realized for one thing that we were still expecting each other you know to read each other's mind to know what we needed mm-hmm. and david was talking about being pushed into new territory i mean so like never before we realized we needed to just be willing to state here's what would be helpful mm-hmm. so here's a, what it's i a need secret revolutionary uh, method we've come up with and that's kind of <laughs> Say it, you know. Um. <laughs> so, for example, it, it was an issue for us at times when I was crying. Oftentimes, it was at the end of the day, I got in bed and we'd watch something on TV or maybe turn the TV off. Or maybe I felt like I'd held in tears all day that needed to come out and I'd start to cry. Boom. And um, David sometimes would kind of ignore that. Other times I felt like he would move in to comfort me in a way that I felt the pressure to stop crying. (laughs) And then I realized, okay, I'm feeling annoyed by how he's responding here, but I don't think, not only have I not communicated to him what would be helpful, I don't think I've ever thought through clearly. So 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 that's not fair. Right. And so I I told him at one point, I just communicated, you know, when I'm crying like that, it would really help me. If you would just reach over and put your hand on me, that lets me know that you recognize I'm sad, I'm mm-hmm. but you're not also trying to get me to stop. And, you know, Michael, that began to help then. And here, 16 years later, it still works. Still the same. Yeah, and it it's a, a huge, very uh, small thing. It sounds so simple. It's embarrassing knows, to say, yeah. well, but it's actually it's, very it's back significant. To expectation, though. And, and, and the key, I think, here is what you said. I don't know what I need right now. Yeah. 
That's huge. Huge. And and then beyond that, even defying that, you know, Cindy and I have this this thing. I walk in the door, I can tell by coming up the stairs what kind of mood she's in. For open the door, I know exactly the mood she's in, and I can take a look at her in the office and confirm it. And <laughs> leave the woman alone. <laughs> Maybe the approach. Other times, it's like go sit down and just say, "What's going on? How's your day?" But that's thirty-four years of marriage and working at it. And you guys had a crash course, one hundred ninety-nine days of mm-hmm. intensive care, we might say, mm-hmm. in this in this uh, new new situation. Yeah. And Matthew is also in the background. He's yes, there right. when she's born. Yeah, exactly. He uh, he took her up to his second grade class to sh- show her off shortly after she was born. And but you know he was uh, yeah he was overhearing all the conversations that we were having with friends and and a lot of them were challenging. Um, they were certainly new uh, for him. You know, that it's hard to even describe what those days were like because they were filled with the mundane stuff of life that we all go through. But it, For him, everything Boy was, Scouts yeah, and er, all everything that. was kind of charged with a, a new awareness of our own mortality, of a, of a new um, kind of eyes looking to God to ask, what are you doing and what do you want from us? And mm-hmm. what is, you know, what does this mean? What's the bigger picture? Um, we had a sense that people were leaning in, kind of watching, mm-hmm. curious, fascinated, horrified, you know, all those all things. And we were busily uh, kind of living our own life, trying to still give Matt, you know, the life of a eight or nine-year-old at that time and all the things that that entails. But we were also um, continually asking God to give us the energy and um, the wisdom to uh, glorify him in uh, in this process. One of the most significant experiences with Matt, I remember, he was in second grade, and he goes to a Christian school, and so every day at the end of the day, they prayed. Mm. So what do you think they prayed? Mm-hmm. His whole class was praying that God would heal hope. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget him coming out to the carpool one day after second grade and hopping in the car, and just immediately he looked at me and he said, Mom, should I expect God to heal hope or not? Mm-hmm. And I knew why he was asking that. That was what was being prayed every day. And I just said to him, well, Matt, here's, I said, I, I don't know. I said, we know that God can do anything. He spoke the world into being. He can do anything. But I also know that no child has ever lived past infancy with this syndrome. Mm-hmm. Here's what we do know is that hope is in God's hands. And whether she's here with us or whether she's here there with him, we can trust him with her. But you know, that did, that was part of the struggle of this, honestly, that people of faith, we tend to think, basically we have a very limited prayer vocabulary in regard to suffering. We really only know how to pray for God to take the suffering away. And, and in, even in that, you know, as a pastor who's prayed with scores of people, it's, you know, God, I know you are able to do things. Our prayer is, are you willing to do this? And is this the right thing to pray for? And we can be, even as the professional ministers, we can be chastised for not believing in God. Um, talk a little bit about that, because we're not hoping in, you know, this not, it's not a little engine that could faith. The more faith we have in God, then he's going to perform for me. I think I can. I think I can. It's, it's a positional faith that 
what whatever you do, God, help us to accept it? Well, you asked earlier about asking the question why, and that's something we've continued to do in, in what I hope is a fruitful way during that time and in, in the years since, and that is to look at the scriptures. And we see over and over again the good purposes that God presents in the scriptures in regard to suffering. I mean, in fact, I love it as, a, as you go through them so, so many times, it'll talk about an experience that will happen that will, that will, so many times when we look at the scriptures, it'll talk about an experience of suffering and then it'll actually use the words, this happened so that, mm. right? So think of Paul when he says, to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in the flesh. Yeah, so he passage, saw a purpose. That passage disturbs me because that's a messenger of Satan sent from God, mm-hmm. if you look at it carefully. Mm-hmm. That's one for another another day. Yeah, I love talking about that. But many other places. Yes. These hap- this happened so that, uh, like in 1 Corinthians 1, so that you would rely more fully on God and but, not but, on yourselves. But and, let's say even stop and say this. Even if we don't know the so that, we still have to live by faith, right? And what right, living yeah. by faith is saying... I may not understand your purposes, but I welcome you to accomplish them because I believe they're good. Yeah. Yeah. Nancy mentioned earlier that that uh, Philip Yancey book that um, was discussing the why question. And and he was saying, you know, I think it's more helpful many times for us to ask to what end. Right. But and and so we do look uh, to God and, and say we 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 want to understand we want to be aware. We want to be able to respond to your purposes. But um, I think sometimes what that what that does it causes people to say, "Okay, therefore there must be one hidden purpose out there uh, for which God has allowed or caused this suffering right. in my life." And so it's almost like we go on a treasure hunt. It's my job uh, to find know, it. Yeah, to to. Uh, a scavenger hunt to find what is that one thing. And um, I believe that God has a multitude of purposes in all that he's doing. And um, so what gives us peace ultimately can't be uh, our certainty that we figured out exactly what God's specific purpose was. Um, Our peace comes from the, the belief and the trust that God is God. He is sovereign overall, including everything in my life, good and bad, uh, and that he is love. And, and so our, we, we mentioned earlier that sense that um, maybe we thought our faith would, would really prepare us for loss and it wouldn't hurt. Well, it doesn't hurt, but it's really important to, to follow that and say what it does do is, is it um, confirms our hope. It it, um, you said it when we began, faith is something that we need, uh, not all the time necessarily. We don't exercise it all the time. We need it when we, we don't have sight. It, se- it seems to be the we only time it's see. real to me is, mm-hmm. is when there's in between. The props are knocked it. out. There's no place to turn. That's when I have to choose to trust God. Yeah. So our faith keeps us from despair. Yes. Believe, because, um, you know, we believe that this life that we're experiencing right now, it's not all there is. Um, And our hope is in um, our belief that God, uh, who gave life to hope and gave life to you and me, uh, gave us the gift of life in the first place, is the one who will perfect that life. And and, uh, without that, we don't have hope. 
Phillips Brooks uh, in the 1800s wrote a devotional called The Candle of the Lord. And I've often heard people talk about, you know, you go through suffering and pain and trial, so you'll learn something you would not have learned otherwise. And yeah, I like that, but it's also kind of kitschy to me. You know, it's a little bit, uh, and I came across this. The reason we are led into trouble and out again is not merely that we may value happiness the more from having lost it once and found it again but that we may know something which we could not have known except by that teaching, that we may bear on our nature some impress which could not have been stamped except on natures so softened to receive it. Mm. And it's not just I'm going to learn something I didn't know, but through this grief and tragedy in, in, in my life, chronic pain or whatever it is for anyone who's, who's listening to us, um, we're softened. And now it's like, okay, Lord, now, you know, spiritual uncle, you know, what, what do you want? From, I often say it's not, I don't ask God why, I ask him, how do I live? Mm-hmm. How do I go forward? Which is not unlike Yancey's end, mm-hmm. to what end? So We've been talking with David and Nancy Guthrie about a number of their books, in particular on this broadcast, about losing their little daughter, Hope. But the story doesn't end there. You guys went on. Uh, you have buried an infant now. You've buried a child 199 days. You're working through grief. You're working through loss, uh, family dynamics, all these things. It doesn't stop. And somewhere in there you decide, okay, are we going to have any more children? Once we had Hope, and she had Zellweger syndrome, which she had that because evidently David and I are, are carriers of the recessive gene trait for that syndrome. We knew that that means that whenever we have a child, that child would have a 25% chance of having the fatal syndrome. So we had our healthy son, Matt, and we had Hope, who had hit these 25% odds of having the fatal syndrome. And so we had a difficult decision to make about whether or not we would have more children. And honestly, Michael, it wasn't a simple decision. Some people might immediately say, oh, gosh, I would never want to take that chance But I realize that when they hear our story, they perhaps imagine the pain of it, but that it's harder to imagine the joy of it. And her life did bring us a lot of joy. Mm -hmm. And so we didn't immediately say, no, it would be the worst thing in the world to have another child who lived with us a short time like Hope did. But also, you know, our lives aren't just us. And there was our son, Matt, who lived in a house for six months waiting for his sibling to die. Mm -hmm. And then a lot longer in a house with a really sad mom, which I promised you could not have been fun. And there was our parents, and as hard as it is to lose a child, I think it's perhaps doubly difficult to watch your child lose a child. You have nothing in your bag to pull out to fix it. And so we decided to take surgical steps to prevent another pregnancy. So you can imagine our surprise, to put it mildly, to learn a year and a half after Hope died that I was pregnant. But we weren't just surprised we were afraid of course (laughs) Uh, there was part when I first discovered it like this cautious sense of joy like here's this thing we have ruled out and God has clearly overruled it and perhaps he's done so because he's going to give us another healthy child to raise and enjoy which we didn't expect and which honestly at that point our family didn't feel complete and so Mm -hmm. that possibility was a joyous possibility but significant Um, But then there was also this hit in the gut, like, wow, you mean you might be asking us to love and lose another Another child to go through this again? And that seemed overwhelming. Mm. 
So we went through prenatal testing because we felt like it's going to be helpful to know which way we're going Mm -hmm. and discovered that the child I was carrying was a boy this time who would also have the fatal syndrome. So we continue on this journey of faith and this journey of things we can't see or understand or have all our why questions resolved. We trust in Christ. We trust in his word. We walk closely to him even when it does not make sense. You can find out more about the Guthrie's writings, two in particular, Holding On to Hope, and When Your Family's Lost a Loved One, that we commend you to investigate. Thanks again for listening. Join us next time for the third part of our interview with David and Nancy Guthrie. This is Michael Easley in Context. For more information, go to michaelincontext.com. Thank you for listening to Michael Easley in Context.